Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. All right, moving it forward because I realize there's a table behind me. So I don't want to end up on YouTube uh, church fails. I don't know if you've ever watched those, but and I like watching them, but I'm not, not wanting to be on it so much. So um, this morning, very exciting. We're going to start a three-part series um, going through John uh, chapters 18 through 20. And this series is called The Hour of the Hero. The Hour of the Hero. And this leads to two logical questions. And the first being, well, what is a hero? Right? What is a hero? And I think we all have some idea, but I looked up some definitions. And so I looked at the Oxford Dictionary, which says a hero is a person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. Or dictionary.com. A person noted for courageous acts or nobility of character. And so a hero is someone who, whose, whose character and qualities are just, just amazing and to be noted and admired. And quite frankly, isn't that what we do here Sunday mornings? As we, as we talk about and study and worship our hero, Jesus, what are we doing? We're taking notes, right? We're taking notes of his word and this incredible story and we're admiring our hero with our praise, right? We're singing songs about the hero of our faith, songs about his character and his accomplishments, all the things he's done for us. And so Jesus is the hero, but, but what is the hour? Well, the hour is his story. It, it is his, his journey, his story, his moment, his hour that transcends anything that would be ordinary, Right? We're still talking about this because this is not the normal story that we hear. You know, th th this is an extraordinary story. And so we're going to look at the hero's journey of Jesus. And the hero's journey is one of the most popular uh, story types, narratives in history. We find this through all cultures throughout history, this idea of the hero's journey. Now, the hero's journey typically contains at least one of or, or all of the following. You have a call. This person is called. There's a supernatural gifting or power that's given. There's opposition, right? There's tests of character and strength and will. Um, there's a goal that needs to be accomplished. There's actually something that needs to be done, some sort of, some sort of drama. And, and sometimes this culminates in the hero's death and resurrection, and then at some point at the end of the story, the hero goes home or ascends back to where they came from. Now, the interesting thing about that is all my sources studying that, as a guy who has an English degree and, and, and my studies this past week, all the sources of the hero's journey archetype story are secular. I didn't look up one Christian source. This is what we as humans, as people throughout history, this is our ideal story that, that we look up to, that we want. This is what we want to be true. 
Now, in the academic literary world, this, this hero's journey, this narrative is called a monomyth. It's called a monomyth. It has to be a myth. It's too good. It's too perfect to be true. We can only call this a myth. It's too fantastic. But we need this. We need this type of hero. We need this ideal to look up to, something that makes us want to be better than ourselves. And so this greatest story of humanity, this myth, well, for the Christian, this is our greatest truth and reality, right? It's not a story for us. Like, no, we know this actually happened, and this is, this is what we believe. Now, in the life of Jesus, Jesus has talked about, as we talked about last week, that there is this hour, right? There is this hour. Well, what is the hour? Well, it's not an hour. Well, that's the first thing we know about it. And so when Jesus talks about the hour, and last time we met together, we, we talked about this, when Jesus finally gets to that moment after for his whole ministry saying, it's not come, my hour hasn't come, last week he's like, the hour's here. Which means the hour is, starts at the end of the Last Supper, or this con last conversation he has with the disciples, and then through the end of his ministry. So this is the hour, this time period, specifically. Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to read about this hero's journey, this hour of the hero. And it's interesting to think about, to think about, it, think about it like this, and this is what I want us to do, is knowing that Jesus is the hero, look at this, I, I'd say, almost like a movie, right? Or even a video game, if you play video games, where you have to get through these certain levels, right? You face all these oppositions, whether it's act one, two, three, or level one, two, three, you have to transcend and ascend everything that comes before you. And we're going to see for Jesus that he, he comes against all this opposition just to get to the cross. Now, mind you how difficult the cross is by itself. Even if his hour was just leaving that meal and going to the cross, that's a difficult road just to get there and a difficult experience. Now, on his way to get to this very difficult moment of the cross, he has all these encounters. He has all these encounters, including uh, humans, right? Um, people, uh, soldiers, Satan, police, priests, kings, his own people. All. So he has to go through all of them just to, to get to the cross. And so, unlike the heroes of this world, where you know, we hear their story, and the purpose of their story, you know, is to make money and to get us to purchase, right, that licensed product, right? That, that's the purpose of our heroes in our culture, buy more licensed product. The purpose of our hero's story is for you to know that you were purchased. You were purchased by him, and that's what all this is about. Believe that you were purchased, and this is what that story looks like. And so our sermon today is the hour of the hero, part one. Trouble and triumph in the garden. And I'll start by praying for us. Lord, I know that this is a passage of Scripture that many are familiar with, whether it's um, <clears throat> every year at Easter we go through it, or, or movies about it, or TV series about it, and just a lot of sermons that go right to this. But I hope we've laid the foundation by going through this entire gospel about what is really happening in this passage, Lord? Let us not be too familiar 
with this story to not be in awe, to not understand everything Jesus did for us, how difficult it was, and quite frankly, how we in many ways represent the opposition to him, Lord. As he comes to save us, we are also his opposition and enemy. And so, Lord, give us a heart and mind by your spirit, Lord, to just be more in awe of Jesus and embrace our hero Jesus this morning, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, first, first thing we're going to do starting in chapter 18, we're going to start in chapter 18 today, is we're going to look at the setting. Setting is very important. We'll see this through the whole hour that the setting is always announced, right? And so what's interesting about this, well, let's read the verse 1 where it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And so Jesus has finished praying. He's ended, ended the conversation with the disciples in the Last Supper. And then it says they crossed the Kidron to get to the garden. And so, oh, well, there's an unusual, unnecessary detail. Who cares what they crossed to get there? And so we have to ask ourselves, anytime that there's a specific Anything mentioned that hasn't been mentioned before now in the entire book of John, we've gone through this book, and it doesn't tell us every time they take a step, every time they cross somewhere. Like, those details aren't always given to us. But why say this? They cross the Kidron to get there. Well, quite frankly, what we have here is foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing of things that are to come. At times, the Kidron was a river. Sometimes, part of the year. At other times, it was dry. Now, maybe your study Bible this morning might be telling you at this time there was a river. But that river isn't a river. It's a river of blood. It's a, it's a river of blood because it's the Passover. And so there's an estimated, uh, most theologians, scholars that estimate, something like 200,000 lambs, sheep a day were sacrificed. So if you can, I don't know if you can imagine the blood from 200,000 just pouring down, but this is the route that it took. And so these first steps in the hour, as the hour begins, it, it almost looks like a movie, right? It almost looks like a movie. You can just see the first steps is Jesus and the disciples getting their feet wet in blood. Jesus' feet, the first thing they do is touch sacrificial blood. It's the first thing that happens. It's foreshadowing. Right? All this leads to Christ's river of blood, right? to him being the sacrificial lamb. It tells you right off the bat, this is what this hour is about. And so with blood-soaked feet, they enter a garden. Now, it doesn't tell us the name of the garden here, but we know from the other Gospels, this is Gethsemane. That's the name of this garden. And so the setting is a garden. So why start here, though? Why, why talk about the fact they're in a garden? Well, we know, going back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, where is the hour that, that everything went wrong for humanity? Where does that take place? It takes place in the garden, right? And so Jesus, as entering this ministry in the hour, first place he goes is the garden. He's showing us, like he, he's the son of man. He is the second Adam. And so the way he's going to bring our peace with God again, he's going to do it by showing us how this is going to happen by going 
to the garden. After all, it was in the garden that the gospel was first prophesied, as we heard earlier in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and, and you shall bruise his heel. What's that describing? The hour, right? That's what this is about. All these encounters are Satan bruising Jesus' heel, trying, trying to stop him. And yet Jesus is still going to bruise his head. He's still going to crush his head at the end. Spoiler, he's going to crush, right, Satan's head, death, at the end of this hour. Now, speaking of Satan, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so now we begin to meet the opposition. So we have the setting where this takes place, and now the opposition immediately starts coming, so we're going to see them. And we're also going to see some, some of the unique supernatural strengths that make Jesus a hero in this story. And so the first person we meet is Judas. Judas, who, who betrayed Jesus. Now, it says here, Jesus beat Judas to the garden, right? And so, Jesus gets there first. That's very important to know, because this is what was supposed to happen. And so, Jesus is sovereign over this whole situation, which means sovereign. He's just in control of this entire situation. Now, Judas is guessing, right? It says Judas is guessing. Okay, this is most likely where Jesus is going to be, because this is where Jesus likes to hang out. But Jesus is already there because he knows this is, this is exactly, he knows Judas is coming. That, that's what Judas is going to guess. And so Jesus has all the authority in this encounter because Jesus authored this encounter. Right? He knows exactly where to be in this story. Now what we find here in a very cowardly deceptive way is we also find Satan in this scene. And so we have Jesus versus Satan here as well. Now, it never mentions Satan here, right? So where do I come up with this? Well, uh, a few months back in John 13, verse 27, we read, then after he had taken the morsel, after Jesus had given Judas some bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. And this gives me the chills, man. This, this is pretty intense, crazy scene if you think about it. These words of Jesus to Judas, he's talking to Judas and Satan at the same time. Right? That's what John says. He's talking to Judas and Satan. And what does Jesus say? Like, game on. Go do this thing. This is the hour. Go do this thing you're supposed to do. I'll meet you there. I'll get you there before you. But now is the time that we are going to do this. And so Judas, under satanic influence, well, he doesn't go to the garden alone. He's not going to do that. And so it says in verse 3, again, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so what we see here is like the strength of the, the opposition. Now, Jesus has sovereignty. Jesus is in control. 
And the other side, they have torches, right, and swords. They have weapons, right? So you have the knowledge of God versus the weapons of man. So we have Jesus versus the Roman army and the temple police. And you could say this is really, if you think about it, this is about the authority of God versus the authorities of men. What a scene. And so a band of soldiers, you know, these aren't mall cops, right? A band of soldiers. What is a band of soldiers? I think band, I think four people, maybe five. Well, Roman soldiers, a band was a thousand. <laughs> so some of the greatest soldiers in history, there's a thousand of them. It doesn't tell us how many police there are, but we know the Pharisees sent them. The Pharisees have a bunch of money, a bunch of sway, so tons of police there as well. And so by the appearance, it looks like Jesus and the disciples are overpowered and outmatched, ill-equipped even. And so the scene is set. Jesus versus Judas, Satan, the Roman soldiers, and the temple police. So what is Jesus' response to this? How does the hero respond here? In verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And so what we see here is that, like this verse says, that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. He's omniscient. Omniscient means he knows everything. Forward, backward, everything happening there. He's omniscient. Right? So he's sovereign and omniscient. This is exactly what he wants. And so you can imagine Jesus, though, staring into, in, into this army. You know, imagine staring into over a thousand troops, their faces, their breath, just, you could see their breath in, in the, in this, uh, this would be late night, early morning, their breath just coming out of their helmets, their armor glowing, right, from torches. I mean, they all look like they're just on fire and glowing and fierce. And Jesus comes out and he just says, what are you guys looking for? What's up, guys? Who are you looking for? Like, there's something going on here? Like, is there, is there war? Is there war going on? And then in verses 5 and 6, this conversation continues. And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so the words of Jesus here, we've heard before. And so Jesus says, ego, me" in Greek, which we've talked about multiple times. It means I am, I am. Just like God talking to Moses. And every time that Jesus said he was anything, I, I am the light of the world, he uses this term. But the difference is, if you can recall, it doesn't say that everybody fell down when he said it. Right? That's never mentioned before. But here it is. Why does this knock everybody down? Well, he's letting them know. And he's letting us know that he is in charge of this whole situation. His name alone can dominate this whole battle. Just his name, just by saying I am, it could be game over. He has the authority. Whatever happens, he knows what is going to happen, which means Jesus is not the victim. Jesus is not the victim. A victim has no control over their circumstances. Jesus is the hero. It's over, we've already seen twice where it says Jesus knows. Jesus knows what is happening. 
And so our hero Jesus speaks again in verses 7 through 9. It says, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe a little more apprehensive this time. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And so Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, prophecy here again because he is sovereign right, and omniscient. He's fulfilling prophecy. But notice it says here twice that he says what? I'm the guy you're looking for. I'm the guy you want. Remind me, soldiers, who are you here for? Me? Okay, leave them alone. Who are you here for? Oh, me. It's me, right? Leave them alone. And so classic hero talk, right? Have we not seen that in so many movies? I'm the one you came for. Let them go free. And that's exactly what we see here. Jesus is the one in charge talking to a group of over a thousand soldiers, telling them what to do. Think about that. And yet, Jesus is the one that goes with them willingly. Now, in the middle of this exchange, there's, there's this cut scene to, to Peter. And so when I say cut scene, it's literally Peter cutting off somebody's ear. And we see this in verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so we have this cut scene really quick of Peter cutting off this guy's ear. Why did Peter do that? I think that Peter, I, mean, I think he was kind of smart. I mean, Peter just weighed out his options. And so... You know, Peter's thinking, well, we have us disciples. You know, there's 11 of us, and, and we have Jesus leaning heavily on the Jesus factor versus the, the, this Roman troops and police. I think we can win this battle, right? Because he already knows just the name of Jesus alone can win them. So he's going to be heroic, like, acting like, you know, it's for his glory, right? He's like, I got this. Jesus, you got me, right? And so he's going, and he's attacking, and they're going to win this battle. But Jesus rebukes him. Because although true, Jesus could, I mean, turn these guys inside out, turn them into balloons, do absolutely anything he wants. He can call legions of angels and destroy this army. This isn't the battle he came for, right? This is a distraction. If anything, you know, I can only assume that, that Satan is just trying to use this as a distraction because this isn't going to stop Jesus, but they want to stop him from getting to that cross. They just don't realize it. And so Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away. It's not going to happen like this. And this is also a great summary and, again, a sign of what is actually taking place in this battle, which looks like it's going one way, but it's actually going another. So what we see here is that Jesus, by sacrifice, by willing sacrifice, and not by violence, is going to heal his enemies. And so again, we see little clues like this of what is actually happening, because it doesn't look good at this point. And so verses 12 through 14, it just says Jesus is bound and taken to Annas, the priest. But before we leave the garden, I want us to consider a few things. Who won the confrontation in the garden? Like, who won that battle? 
Jesus leaves in chains. Right? The disciples go in different directions. And Jesus walking out in chains. Who won that battle? It's not a heroic posture. So Judas, Satan, the Roman army, and temple police taking Jesus away. And I believe it's sad scenes like that that should really give us confidence in the sovereignty of God. The winner of this confrontation is not the might of men or the biggest army, right, or Satan, but our sovereign Lord Jesus. Jesus allows himself this humiliation. The God of the universe is in chains. Like, that's the last verse with the verses that we read. The God of the universe is chained by man. And I believe we as Christians, followers of the hero, Jesus, must operate in this understanding, this precedent that Jesus has set. That sometimes success is born out of a series of seeming defeats. Right? Sometimes that's where we are, right? We're right in the middle of being chained to something. But that's not the way God operates. That, doesn't, that isn't necessarily where our story ends. And so we can't measure and define ourselves by little battles instead of wars. Do you trust that God is sovereign? Do you trust that God is sovereign? This is why I'm so big on theology. Theology is practical. Theology is practical. Do you believe that Jesus leaving in chains is what was supposed to happen here? Then it has to shape our understanding of how God operates in our lives. Maybe you are struggling. Maybe you're struggling at work. Maybe you failed a test at school. Maybe troubles in marriage, with your health. Um, maybe, you, maybe your children are just making unwise decisions, believing things that are, that are silly, maybe even dangerous. Maybe you're not where you want to be socially or financially. Now, Jesus doesn't promise that everything is going to turn out your way. But by reading this text, it should give us confidence that even if it does seem like we are just overpowered by life and the forces around us, that God can use any situation like this. And there's actually this whole plan that's going on that you have to believe that God is sovereign to understand. Our hero is the only one who could make defeats, victories, the only one who can redeem our most foolish decisions. And I'm, I'm a perfect example of that. Me, I'm a perfect example of foolishness. And yet God can still use even somebody like me. We have to trust in God. You know, the irony of, of people who don't trust in God, of this sort of hubris, of, of shaking your fist at God and blaming God for stuff, is that God was never brought into the situation to begin with. How often is it you find somebody who's in a miserable situation that never seems to end that they will blame God? It's like, why are you blaming God? <laughs> this has nothing to do with God. That's like me watching a car accident happen, somebody getting out of the car and blaming me. It's like, no, I wasn't in the car. We need to trust in God and believe whatever's happening, that God was in that car with us. And yes, it, it's not fun getting into an accident, but there's something about that that's going to change the rest of our lives. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is sovereign? Now, there's one more dynamic to the garden here that isn't mentioned directly in the text. 
but it's here. And there's one more sort of confrontation. Along with those who were present, we also have to realize that Adam was present. Adam from Genesis, right? That, that's why we talked about um, the whole setting aspect. So we have Jesus, the son of man, versus Adam, the man. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will succeed where Adam fails. And so although we don't see him, you see these two trajectories happen at the same time. That's why you needed to know this was a garden, right? That's why Jesus says, I am the second Adam. We're going to redo this. We're gonna, as the hero, he's going to redo this thing that we couldn't do. <clears throat> so let us compare. Well, for one, life began for Adam in the garden. Only to be kicked out. To lose a perfect relationship that he had with God because of his sin. His sin ruined everything. And then we have Jesus, who ends his life, right? This is the end of his life in the garden, having lived a sinless life, right? The opposite. Jesus has lived a sinless life. Well, Adam sinned in disobedience. Jesus was obedient to the task set before him, the task of the cross, which I think... You know, I think it's a little more difficult than don't eat that one fruit over there. And Jesus is obedient to that much harder task. Where Adam hid in the garden, right? What do we know about Adam in the garden? He hides. He hides in the garden. What does Jesus do? Why does it mention in this passage that Jesus comes out of the garden? Again, a detail that we don't necessarily need. Because he comes out of it. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. He is not scared of anybody. When Adam left the garden, humanity left with him in the chains of sin, right? In sin, chained in sin. Jesus leaves in chains as well to set us free from sin. When Adam left Eden, the sword of the angel was drawn to keep him out. When Jesus left, the sword was sheathed, right? Malchus' sword is sheathed because not through violence, but through peace and sacrifice, Jesus is going to recreate that garden for us. He's going to bring us back into intimacy and relationship with the Father. Even in chains, Jesus leaves the garden as our hero. He is on our way to save us. Right? And what, one thing we don't think about often is it is the life of Jesus, not just his death, but his life that saves us. Right? The only reason that he, can be, that he can replace us is not just his death, but his life. And so by going through the garden and doing all these things, it's like, look, I did this. And so at the cross, when we have that exchange of his righteousness, we get this perfect garden experience. And Jesus takes all of the human experience through Adam for us. And so Jesus the hero saves us knowing that we are broken, sinful people who make mistakes. Even some of us who are, are believers. I think all of us, I think all of us could say that we haven't done as much for Jesus as we could have. 
that are even today that we could possibly do for Jesus, right? And so the problem is, though, we stay there. Oh, I messed up. I, I could have went into this ministry. I could have did this thing for Jesus, and I didn't. I guess that, that ship is passed. I made a mistake, and now I'm just the guy who makes mistakes, or girl who makes mistakes. And so we stay in that situation when, quite frankly, again, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, God is using everything. God is creating a path for us through all of our failures to then be successful. And we find a great example of this in Peter. So let's look at the rest of the cutscenes with Peter. We're going to put them together because it just cuts in between a lot of narratives. But let's look at Peter because Peter has encounters as well. Peter is going to go head to head with three servants. Right, Peter versus the three servants. Very unintimidating servants. And so Peter follows Jesus. A couple of the disciples follow Jesus to the priest Annas' house. But they can't get in. But one of the disciples, it doesn't say who, he has some connections. And so he actually gets, he gets Peter into the courtyard. Right? So Peter could see what's happening with Jesus. And so we have Peter's first encounter in verse 17 where it says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, "You are not one of this you are you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you?" He said, "I am not. I am not." Of course, the opposite of what Jesus said, right? I am. And this gets made fun of a lot. I see this a lot especially in in movies, TV shows where it's like it's a little girl talking to Peter. We don't know. It says servant girl. We don't know if it was a little girl. But either way, we, we, I don't think he was intimidated by the girl. I think it could have been a guy. I think what Peter is scared of is the authorities. He, he's scared because he just saw a legion, right? This whole group, this band of soldiers, and he knows they're out for blood. And so that's why he's scared. And then in verses 25 through 27, we read, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Peter denies it. Two more denials and seemingly casual conversations, uh, fire pit conversations. Right? Peter's just like, nope, don't know what you're talking about. And to be sympathetic towards Peter, which I don't think enough people are, this is early morning. Like they had a long day the day before. We already know that. We've spent months talking about the day and night before this. He's exhausted. Um, he's overwhelmed. He's probably hungry. He's tired. He's scared. And so don't write him off so quickly. He does fail, but don't be so quick to judge. He's in a horrible position. He's scared. This is the scariest hour in human history. Mind you, consider that. Men and women are killing God, right? This is terrifying. This is the hour of humanity at its worst. And so I sympathize with him. Now, some have suggested that Peter's answer was genuine. He saw what was happening, and he was like, nah, I'm not into this anymore. This is not... This isn't free bread and water and, and really cool teaching. This is like, it's going to cost me my life. 
I don't believe that is true. While we don't know why Peter did it, perhaps Peter didn't know why he did it. He's just tired and scared and, and everything else. But Jesus knew he was going to do it. Right? Even if Peter didn't know, Jesus knew. And so back in 13, chapter 13, verses 37 and 38, this conversation between Peter and Jesus, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then in verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. <clears throat> How horrible. Like, I, again, I, I sympathize. How awful would you feel <laughs> just knowing that you did that, but you got called out a couple hours earlier, and you just blew it. I mean, Peter blows it. There's not a good word for it. He knows. He is convicted. And again, just note, again, the sovereignty of Jesus here, knowing exactly to this, to this farm animal exactly what was going to happen this night. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us when the rooster crowed that, that Peter just wept bitterly. I mean, he's just on the floor, fetal position, crying, gets up and runs away. He, he, he's in a horrible position. So what are we to take away from Peter's failure? Like, what do we do with that? Why is there this cutscene in this awesome heroic story of Jesus just going through all, you know, all the boss levels, going through everybody, and we have this cutscene three, four times of, of Peter just failing and failing and failing. Mind you, in the other Gospels, we know that also this is not the first time Peter has failed. This is his hat trick, right? And so he's already failed to walk on water, to trust in Jesus. He's tried to stop Jesus from getting to the cross, didn't want Jesus to die, and now this. Peter has the hat trick of failure. What do we take from that? We all have or will have those moments. We will. I promise you, if you hadn't have them yet, that's great, but you will have them. We will fail. We will fail to trust Jesus in some area of our life. We, we will fail to serve. We will fail to, to present the gospel in certain moments when we know that we are called to and that we should. And so I want to look at three quick lessons that we can learn from Peter's failure here. Because I do believe that's why it's here. It's not to shame Peter. And the first is let it go. Let it go, not by singing it, but by giving it to Jesus. Don't let those moments of weakness and error define us. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to weep bitterly. It's okay to go collect yourself. Right? We've seen this in Peter's life. All these things he does, retreating for a season is okay. You've you got to regroup. You can't stay out there. We can't let our failures define us. Satan and the world, that's what they want. Oh, you failed? I mean, I think about it this week as I, as I watch one of my, you know, I don't know if I call him a hero, but one of my, my, my main teachers, Matt Chandler, this week, he failed, right? He, he was in an inappropriate, not relationship, but sending texts that were not good. And so you go on YouTube, you listen to the radio, what are they talking about? Fail, 
This is going to define. His, his ministry is ruined. He can't recover from this. Why not? Is that Jesus talking? No. He can absolutely recover from this. Does he need time away from the pulpit? Yes. Does he need help? Yes. Does he need to be held accountable? Yes. Does he need Jesus? Yes. But is his whole life and ministry going to be defined by one moment? It doesn't have to be. Another one, a, a true hero of my faith, I believe a person Jesus used to get me. I don't know if I, I would be at this point if it weren't for Mark Driscoll. A guy who failed, failed miserably. There's a whole really good uh, a series on that, The Fall of Mars Hill. He fails miserably. And yet, how many people do I run into at conferences where it's like, this is the guy that inspired me? How many of us, as this guy has been put out, we're like, we're here because of this guy? And my prayer for Mark and for, for everybody in ministry, and even those who aren't in ministry, but just in your life, if you have failed, it, mean, it might be a failure. It might cost you something, but I'm always praying for the rebound, right? We do it with sports stars, right? It's a great story. If a sports star has a falling out, does something dumb, hits somebody in a nightclub, does something ridiculous, a year or two later, they come back. What do we do? We cheer. Why don't we do that in the church? Why don't we do that for each other? Why don't we pray for those comebacks? We're so judgmental in the wrong way. We can't be chained to our past sin. As I said earlier, Jesus left the garden in chains to unchain you from sin. And a big part of that, I think, that, that people don't really functionally get is you weren't just forgiven of sin, but the other part of that is the guilt. Right? I think we understand our sin's been forgiven. Okay, cool, I can get into heaven. But we still live with the guilt, like, well, I have to suffer the consequences. Sometimes, but that, that guilt is not supposed to remain with you. You can't function. You can't move on from there in that guilt. The other Gospels record Peter meeting with Jesus after his resurrection and Jesus helping him what? Get back into ministry. Jesus, who taught Peter, knowing that Peter would fail and fail and fail, gets Peter back into ministry by what? Like, do something. Like, okay, you feel bad. Okay, cool. Well, now... Let's get you busy again. Like, you're not going to stay there. And so he, Peter becomes a hero of the faith. Something he couldn't do if he sat in his shame, right? If he was just depressed about his failures. And so we have to let it go by coming to Jesus in repentance. And then we need to learn. We need to learn. Like, what happened? <clears throat> what happened? Don't, and so it's, it's one thing to let it go, that's a win. A bigger win is learning what happened. Like, what happened that this bad situation happened? What happened that failed? I am pretty confident that Peter never denied his faith to a servant girl again. Right? I just don't think that's going to repeat itself. In fact, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Peter just wouldn't shut up. Right? In the book of Acts, people are begging Peter, like, stop talking about Jesus. He's brought before not servants, before kings and leaders, the most important people. 
And Peter never backs down again. He gets, he gets beat. He gets beat senseless. He gets imprisoned. And when he gets out of prison, when he heals, he gets up and goes and proclaims the gospel. Lesson learned, right? Lesson learned. He's not going to feel that way again, not about that subject again. But I think sharing our faith and defending our faith is one of the most difficult things that we can do as Christians, especially in a postmodern, post-Christian world. I do believe we should have sympathy for Peter here. But we also need to learn what can happen when we are not ready. Right? Peter was not ready for this moment. He's ready the rest of his life. And that is why, you know, in community groups, we go through a book about evangelism, right? Like, I want us to be ready for that moment to present the gospel. That is why in youth group we teach difficult subjects. This week we talked about um, the fact that love isn't love. Like that's love is love is not correct, right? No, love is a character of God. God created it. God defines it. It points to God. So no, not all love is love. And we have those difficult conversations. And so, as you can imagine, like, you, you having these difficult conversations with your teen, on Tuesday nights, there's a couple of us as adults talking to a whole group of teens about this, about these very difficult subjects. Why? Is it comfortable for me? No. Having a conversation with all these kids about pornography and stuff, is that comfortable? No. But I want them to be ready I want them to be ready. I don't want them to fail. It's too important. It's too important. And the last thing that we need to do and learn from Peter is to lead. Right? Let, let that failure go. Learn from that failure and lead out of that failure. Peter went on to be a pillar, a great leader in the church. He used his failures to, to be his successes. For Peter, repentance wasn't just to stop doing the wrong thing, which he did, but it was to start doing the right thing, which I think is a message we often don't get in the church. It's like, yes, we sing songs that our sins were forgiven. Yes, we repent of our sins, but, but now what? Well, now we follow the hero. Like, one of the things that makes Jesus a unique hero is that he doesn't just save us and then just go get all the glory for himself, he calls us into that glory. Like, there's not even a hero story in the world that's like that, where, you know, say the Avengers save somebody and then they get to be an Avenger. No. But that's what Jesus is doing. Like, I'm saving you. Follow me. I'm going to make you more like me. Help me go save other people. Like, you're on the team now. I didn't just save you, I made you part of the team. And so we have to lead. Well, what does leadership look like for us? We need to get in our own faces. That's what I believe. We need to have that tough conversation before anybody else, before our kids and our coworkers or anybody else. We need to get in our own faces and get our stuff together, own our faults, own our past failures, own all of them and deal with them. Bring them to Jesus. What does that look like? What do I need to do? How do I learn from that? And how do I proceed from here because all of us have a relationship with everybody else here. 
in your family, at work, in, in your friendships, in your hobbies, you need to be a priest, right, in those situations. You don't think about it like this, but if you are a Christian, there's some people out there who don't know Christ, and you are their hero. You have some information for them that's going to change eternity, right? You, you, you can help save them. That's what Jesus is, is using us for, to fish for souls. Like, Jesus is making us more into him. He's making us into heroes. But we have to think about it like that. We all have moments in our faith that we regret. But that is only part of our story, right? Our failures are only a little part of our story. Just like Jesus leaving the garden today in chains. It's a little part of his story. It's not his full story. It's not his hour. That wasn't a failure. But in these lives we have, these little hour of a life we have, we need to spend it pointing to the hero, Jesus. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.